Welcome to the 3B1B podcast. I'm Grant Sanderson. Today, my guest is Ty Dene Bradley, who is currently a researcher at Sandbox at Alphabet. And I think I first came to know about Ty Dene because of the blog that she writes, which is called Mathema. And the spelling is a little weird. It's M-A-T-H-3, the number M-A. And I think what really struck me is how she talks about these topics which are stereotypically extremely abstract, things like category theory, which has this reputation in math of being, you know, the abstraction of abstractions. Today in our conversation, we talk a bit about her research, um, some of her blogging, and the path that got her there, what her experience as a PhD student was, and even before that. And as usual, before diving into things, a brief word from today's sponsor. This episode is supported by Brilliant. I think a lot of people listening to this want to improve their math skills in one way or another, and Brilliant is a great place to do so. In the very first episode of this podcast, actually, Alex Kontorovich and I talked about how important it is to actually work on problems and drill on examples in order to learn, and how this goes just as much for working mathematicians as it does for anyone else. From the get-go, Brilliant's approach has always been more intrinsically about interactivity than a lot of the courses that people take, because they're centered around doing problems and working through exercises. But recently, they've been doing a lot more to make the courses even more interactive. For example, if you want to learn about derivatives, you find yourself directly manipulating graphs and tangent lines and kind of testing your understanding of what they represent. Now, for me personally these days, whenever I try to learn something new, I really have to make an extra effort to remind myself to actually do concrete computations or to actually code something up that's related to the topic rather than just kind of reading about it. So it's exceedingly helpful when there's a platform that actually builds in this mode of interaction. So if there's something that you want to learn, you know, statistics, data science, calculus, geometry, whatever it is, uh, some skill you're trying to develop, take a moment to visit brilliant.org 3b1b and check out some of the courses they have to offer. You can try the product for free, but if you follow that link, brilliant.org slash 3b1b, it gives you a 20% off discount should you choose to get an annual subscription. Was there a moment when you knew you wanted to be a mathematician? Um, there was a moment, yes, but it was a little bit later on in life. Oh, yeah? um, that's an interesting story. So, so how far back do we want to go? <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning. Let's say first there was a, a long period of time when mathematician was not a thing on my radar as far as things to do in life. Mm -hmm. So um, when I was a younger student, I did not really like math that much at all. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I had quite bitter feelings. <laughs> Are, are we talking like elementary school, high school? What? Yeah, what basically like everything up until, you know, middle of college. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, I thought, okay, so for me, when I was, let's say, middle school and high school, math was just one of those subjects that, you know, people said you had to learn along with everything else. Right. Um, I, I don't really have math memories as a young student. Um except for maybe feelings of frustration. Like, mm. what are these esoteric hieroglyphics? And <laughs> why are we doing this? Like, this is so horrible. Mm -hmm. What is this thing? And I didn't understand. I was very much like, uh, I could, I could uh, regurgitate things well. So if like the teacher said, follow this procedure, I could be a very good robot and follow that procedure and then get it correct. But I didn't know what, what mm. I was doing or why I was doing it. And I thought that that's what, 
what math was. So you could so, sort of win the game of school, but it was other than that, yeah, pretty uninteresting. Exactly. Exactly. Um, mm. Totally uninteresting. And in fact, it was like towards the other end, you know, like frustrating. W- what is this thing? Why are we doing it? Anyway, so I went to, I went to college. Um, math was not on my radar. When I entered college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do as far as a major goes. Um, I've always really liked science. Hmm. And when I was in college, I played on the women's basketball team my first two years, actually. Nice. Yeah. So I really liked athletics. I liked science. And so I thought maybe I'd have a career in that realm. In like Um, the mixture of athletics and science? Yeah. Like kinesiology or sports Hmm. nutrition, something like that. Okay. Yeah. So this is what I thought I was going to do in life. Um, So because of that, I was taking some science-y classes. Not, I wasn't a major yet, but okay. Like I took bio 101 chemistry. I put off physics as long as possible because that was very scary. Mm. Um, but on this track, I was taking calculus classes like the calc one, calc two, calc three sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the end of my second year of college, I was in a calc three class and I really, I had a really great teacher. Mm. Someone who taught math as much more than just these, you know, symbols that you push around, much more than just doing really fast arithmetic. Like, who's the fastest that can multiply these numbers together? This is what I thought math was. Hmm. But he taught it um, in a very conceptual way. And he would say things like, you don't have to be a genius to do mathematics. Hmm. And I had never heard someone say that before. And in fact, I thought math was like, the thing that geniuses do. And I'm not a genius, so math is not for me. This is really what I thought. Like, I'll have a career in something else. Were, were there like particular examples that you remember him bringing up to, to this effect? Was it like yes. mainly a matter of emotional motivation? Oh, no, no, no. So I, so I have an explicit example. I'm so happy you, you <laughs> asked. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I remember this very vividly. And okay, I will try not to give too much details uh, to not like bog people down in the weeds. But um, do you remember the comparison test? No, with like for if a series series. converges or not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So maybe um, for the sake of listeners, I'll just recall it really quickly. Please do. You have have some numbers, which I'm going to call them by letters. A1, A2, A3, A4, and you have a whole bunch of them. And you look at their sum. Mm -hmm. And the question is, you know, does this thing converge? Is the sum finite or is it infinite? Is it infinity? Um. Does it converge or does it diverge? So let me call that sum, the sum of these A1, A2, A3, da, 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 let me just call that A. Mm-hmm. Now, suppose you have another uh, series, let's call it B. So it's the sum of numbers B1, B2, B3, da, 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 da. And the question is, um, I, I, like I have a series and I want to know, does it converge or does it diverge? Does it blow up or is it some finite number? And the comparison test says, well, you if you have two of these, you can kind of like compare them with each other. And if you have knowledge about one, that'll tell you something about the other. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to have some hypotheses like suppose that A1 is less than or equal to B1 and A2 is less than or equal to B2, da, da, da. And suppose these are all non-negative numbers. Mm-hmm. Okay, if that's true, then you can you can say the following. The test, the test says if A diverges if that's infinity then so is b Mm -hmm. that's a thing that you know 
Uh, or if B converges, then so does A. So this is a thing that you learn. And I was like, blah, 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 wah, 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 symbols, blah, blah, whatever. <laughs> right, like, yeah. What is that? And who cares? <laughs> then when I learned this in class, here's how the teacher explained it. This was so mind-blowing to me. He said, suppose you're driving down the road and you're in your car, right? Mm -hmm. And you go to a stoplight. And in front of you is a car also at the stoplight right in front of you. Now, um, if the car in front of you stops, then you had better stop. <laughs> like if B, if B is the car in front of you and you're right. A, and if B stops, if B converges, you had better stop or there's a problem, <laughs> right? Okay, right. so this is like the comparison test. Conversely, or the other, the other uh, part of this is, if you don't stop and mm -hmm. you keep going through this red light, you better hope that B goes too. Right. Like B has to go, otherwise there's going to be an accident. That's so such a vivid a, way of viewing it. Isn't it, right? I know. <laughs> like these so series rear-ending each other. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You want to avoid a collision. And so the mathematics says, well, here's how you avoid it. Now, I had never, ever heard anyone describe math like with English. You mm. know, I mean, there's math with English, but then there's math with English. Oh, like yeah. that, like everyday, you know, language. And I thought, I've been in a car at a stoplight and I personally don't like collisions. So I can understand why this is like a math thing and like maybe why it should be true. And that was the first time that I remember um, mathematics, but like as a concept and as an idea. So when he would say, hey, you don't have to be a genius to do math. Anyone can do it. It wasn't just words, but then he would illustrate this concretely by taking what at the time seemed to me like a, you know, a com complex idea, like, I don't know, what is it, like, what is this series? And like, why are we adding these numbers up? And what's the sigma thing anyway? Like, what is this? So to me at the time, it felt complicated, um, but he made it very simple and accessible. Now, that was like an epiphany for me um, because he also taught math in the context of, physics and and he would describe um kind of go off on tangents in lectures but like here's how you know physicists think about these things when they try to understand how the universe works so then that class was very transformative for me because i realized that math is not just about um you know being a human calculator uh which is what i thought or like you know symbol manipulation this is what i thought it was um but it's like you know concepts and ideas that people use to understand the universe and nature around them. Hearing and that, that story actually like resonates, or it, it, it seems to explain a lot because what strikes me about your blog, first of all, it's, it's actually very abstract, a lot of the things. Like you're talking about category theory. Yeah. It's almost bizarre to hear that uh, if you back up to your early college years, just the symbolism around like converging series was unmotivated. Because looking at your blog now, it almost seems like you relished the... Um, I don't know the, the purity and the fact yeah. that you can like take these extremely general concepts and describe them with just a very sparse number of symbols. Mm -hmm. um, but what stands out is you always connect it to something absurdly tangible, right? <laughs> um, like, like way more so than most other math expositors do. And do you think that kind of harkens back to this Calc 3 teachers in, um, I don't know, the example that was set there? Um, I, I do, in fact. So the thing that so, so the question was, I think, your original question was, when did I know I wanted to right. be a mathematician? Yes. Um, so towards answering both of these questions, it wasn't even that class, to be honest. Hmm. So, so what happens after that epiphany? Um, I was like, what? I want to understand the mysteries of the universe. So I quit the basketball team. And you know what? 
I declared physics as my major. Really? Okay. Yeah. Because this was like one step in the direction towards math. Uh, It it wasn't going to be a whole hard to dive into it, but just... Uh, That's right. Well, I, I was very interested in understanding how the world works. And remember, mm. I, I, I really liked science. Um, and I thought, you know, like, that's so cool. When I eat a banana, you know, I get energy after a workout. Like, what is that process? Mm. Like, who's telling my cells to do all the things that they're doing? Mm. Like, I don't have to think about DNA, you know, replicating. It just does it on its own. I find that really fascinating. Very reassuring that it does it. Yeah, that we don't have to think about it. Just how yeah. hard would life be if we did? Like, <laughs> wow, yeah. Too much to think about. <laughs> yes. So, so that's actually really what my interests were. And I kind of, you know, I like asking why. Why does this work? Well, you know, if I'm interested in like how the body works as an athlete, you know, maybe I should understand something about biology. But I really thought it was cool, like at the molecular level. So oh, maybe mm. I should do like biochemistry. I'll be a biochemistry major. Um, but then you keep on asking these fundamental questions and it, it was always going back to physics. Mm. Um, and so I think that class helped me identify that, oh, physics is like the branch of science where you sort of, ask these fundamental questions about, you know, laws of nature. And that's, I was very intrigued by that. So fast forwarding, I guess, a little bit, when I write on Mathema about math topics that feel very pure, like category theory, or, you know, I I went to a graduate program in pure math. Right. um, Really secretly or not so secretly now, it's because I have interests in in like how the world works. Mm, so you're an applied um, mathematician, but with the, the external veneer of <laughs> a category theorist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know. When people say think applied mathematician, maybe they don't. Category theory is not the thing that comes to mind, but maybe I'm like a, you know, doing non-traditional applied mm. math in non-traditional ways or something like that. Well, so I guess if the the reason you were driven into physics as opposed to biochemistry was the sense of uh, like the fundamentals, what uh, what in, then made you step to a graduate program in math instead of pursuing physics and trying to understand just the universe as the universe? Yeah. So um, great question. Uh, so I did physics um, as this major. And uh, so by the way, it took me about six years to finish undergrad. I did two years of basketball. I took Mm. a whole bunch of liberal arts classes. I was like, I don't know what my major is, but science is cool and basketball is too. So I did that for two years. Then I had this life-changing calculus three class. I quit the team. I did did the physics major for two years. At the end of that, I could have, uh, yeah, like stopped, I guess graduated and then do something else. But by the end of that time, um, I realized that all of the fascination that I found actually had foundations in mathematics. Hmm. So I thought it was very curious that when you ask these sort of fundamental why questions, I like filtered down to physics. Then when you're in physics and you ask why, it's like, well, the language that we're using is mathematics. And then you go over to the math world and you're like, why? And it's just like, well, math <laughs> again. So it felt very, very fundamental. And I thought, oh, if I want to understand really what's going on, I need to understand mathematics. Like if I want to one day, you know, be, be engaged, not, not be engaged, that's too much. If I just want to understand what physicists are talking about, I need to know or be fluent in the language that they use. Hmm. And that language is math. And I don't really speak that language very well. So I want to learn it. So at the end of my fourth year of college, I then declared a math major. Really? Okay. <laughs> okay. So I declared a math major and I stayed on for two more years and I did 
I did math. Well, so what were the uh, what were the physics classes like at that point? Was it um, as curiosity provoking as you had hoped it would be? Were they uh, disappointingly abstract, uh, inspiring, um, not? Okay, so now I have to think back. This is a long time ago. <laughs> sure, um, yeah. I think so. They were ex- so I enjoyed them. Sometimes, as as one one does, one feels that some classes can be dry. Um, so I, I definitely had that feeling. I don't know if it was disappointing. I think I was just so excited that I was learning the tools that, you know, the great physicists of old used. I was like, oh, this is so amazing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm like taking a class in quantum mechanics. This is so exciting. Uh, but I think that it was a little bit, I don't know, um, unsatisfactory because I could see that they were using mathematical tools, but we never really talked about them. Like, yeah. you know, I mentioned quantum mechanics, so there's lots of linear algebra. And that felt so fundamental to me. Like, okay, we're talking about eigenvectors and eigenvalues, but like, what is that? And why does it work that way? And why is that the thing that we're choosing? And what else can you do with these things, right? And so that, that, was, that was like a whole nother universe, mathematical universe, and it just seemed that that's where all the juiciness lied. Like, that's mm. where all of the awesome stuff lied. So um, what? So then I, I realized that, you know, if I can understand the math, then I can go back, you know, and like ask the physicist, hey, you know, what are you doing with these tools? It, maybe it's, I don't know, is it harder to go the other way around? I don't know. But I felt like, hey, that's the thing that I'm really interested in. So then I did, you know, I did the math major. Um, and then after I did two years of this math undergrad, that was like, oh no, that's only the appetizer. <laughs> you know, there's, where's the meal? I want more. How can I learn more? I only, I didn't even scratch the surface. It's like a t- touch, tickled the top atom on the top of the surface. Like, there's so much more to do. Undergrad can't be all that there is. I have to go to learn more. Where can I get more information? And then I found out, oh, wait a second, grad school. Mm. Now, in, in, in most math PhD programs, you know, they'll pay for your tuition. So I realized, wait a second, you mean someone is going to pay me to learn math? Oh my gosh. So then it was like the natural thing to do is to go to graduate school. And at this point, was it still with a feeling that you wanted to better understand the language of the physicists or had you kind of been caught into the whirlpool of just the delight of math in and of itself? Um, so it's definitely the former, although I had a better appreciation for the latter. Mm. But I absolutely went into graduate school. Um, you know, when you when you write your your uh, research, not your research statement, but like your personal statement for admissions into graduate school, you know, you, you want to say something about, um, I'm applying to your school because my interests are blah, 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 and you have awesome faculty in these related fields, and here's what I'd like to do. I didn't have like a very specific thing, but I've always had interest in mathematical physics. And so mm. I would say that, you know, I came into graduate school. I wrote this on my little personal statement thing. And I came into graduate school um, with this in mind, like, okay, I want to take math courses and work with an advisor one day that has interests or connections to physics, because secretly I have this goal, you know, that I, mm-hmm. that I stumbled upon a few years prior to, to do this. So, uh, so where did you end up going to grad school and what was the process yeah. of choosing an advisor like? Yeah, so I went to the City University of New York, the Graduate Center, or the CUNY GC, we call it. Hmm. Um, so that's where I went um, to choose a, a, a thesis advisor. Let's see. 
So I think that I kind of poked around on the department website and I saw, you can see, you know, faculty's research interests. Um, I kind of made a list of everyone who did math research that was tangentially related to physics in some way. So this is by process of elimination, right? <laughs> um, and then, you know, as one, as one does, you kind of like ping, ping these faculty, you know, you're so-and-so, I'm a second-year graduate student, and I was, <laughs> I'm really interested in your research, you know, can we meet or something. So I did this um, with a couple of folks. Um, my thesis advisor ended up being John Tarilla, who is a, a great mathematician. He has done work in uh, quantum computing back in the day, but also in, in deformation theory and algebraic topology. Mm. Um, and then, and in fact, it was through him that I, I got introduced to machine learning and even category theory. Mm. So... Um, I, I was very fortunate to to go to a university and, and find a really, really great advisor. Uh, for there, there was a very broad set of different fields that, like yeah. to touch together. And maybe it's no coincidence that category theory sits there on the top if you're saying, hey, we've got like this quantum computing and also topology and data science, trying to have some notion of unifying those. Um, at least as a reader from afar, it seems like this is an interest of yours that you'll take these different things from different fields and try to understand what's a way of viewing them that kind of brings them all together. Was that an instinct that, I don't know, you kind of already had, or was it something that um, this particular advisor seemed to bring out more and uh, highlight? Yeah. Um, so maybe a little bit of both. Um, I think I have always, well, okay, from the time that I started liking math and forward, I've always really enjoyed the sort of 30,000 foot perspective hmm. versus the, you know, fine grain perspective. So I, I really enjoy, um, you know, taking like a, a bird's eye view of the landscape and seeing where things that felt unrelated turn out to actually have some commonality, you know, or be, be related in some way. Um, this happens a lot in mathematics, you know, two mathematicians maybe will come up with two different constructions and then later you realize, oh my goodness, you're doing the same thing. You just use different tools and different words to describe it, but it's the same. I, th I think that's fascinating. Um, now, so I've always really liked this. And I think when I was an undergrad, I really enjoyed the more abstract classes. Like I loved group theory when I first learned about it. I struggled more in real analysis. So I, I really liked the more abstract, mm. like, I don't know, structure type I, I don't know I've had this I've had this sort of love of the abstract for a while now I had never heard of category theory before like I didn't know that was a thing mm -hmm. until I got to graduate school um the first time I okay confession the first time I was in a class and I was formally introduced to category theory I thought it was the worst okay <laughs> so it was like Oh, I was like, see, this is why nobody likes math. Like, this is so horrible. Why, why are we even doing this? <laughs> horrible in the in, sense of it being abstract nonsense, that it was confusing. Yeah, like, that... like garbage. What is this? A category is a collection of objects together with morphisms and a functor can be contravariant or covert. Like, okay, whatever. <laughs> this just made no sense to me. But there was no motivation, right? It was just like, blah, 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 blah. Here's a thing. Move on. I was like, right. this is why people don't like math. Um. I was in grad school at the time having these <laughs> thoughts. So I, you know, had my mental checklist of things I want to do in life. And I was like, category theory, you're not on my list anymore because that was really boring. Okay. However, um, that was what, my first year in graduate school. I think 
maybe the beginning of my third year of grad school is uh, when I met John Tarilla and, and we started working together. Now, um, John, I think, is a great mathematician and he has great perspective and great insight and he thinks categorically, hmm. so uh, category theoretically. So he has, he has that perspective and that mindset and that sort of permeates his thinking. So when I came on board, um, he recommended to me, hey, let's start doing an independent study together and let's learn category theory. I love this inclusive. You know, mm. let's do it together. Let's learn category theory. Why? Because this is the modern language that mathematicians use today. So to help prepare you to be equipped to face the mathematical world of today, you know, you should really get used to this language. And I was a little bit afraid. I was like, well, I've seen category theory and it's very boring. Mm -hmm. um, but however, the way that John describes ideas and talks about mathematics reminded me very much of my original Calc 3 professor. Mm. So it was not just like this dry, you know, check your brain at the door, just open your mouth and I'll shove stuff down. But it was rather, look at the mathematical landscape. Look how these things are connected. You know, you have two worlds like, uh, you know, algebra, group theory, and topology. And there's a bridge between them. Yeah. And like the most exciting place to be is on this bridge where you can transport ideas one to the other. And oh, did you know that that language, that bridge itself is built from mathematics and that mathematics has a name that's category theory. So when it was explained to me that way, it was like, oh my goodness, what? So, so I had to, yeah. It's, I, it's all right, I didn't mean to interrupt the, the excitement there. Um, just for a listener who might not be aware, can you give a description of what category theory is or what it means to you? And oh, especially yeah. maybe in the ways that it um, came through with a positive aftertaste as opposed to this heavily negative one from the first introduction. Yeah, okay, thank you. I'm glad you asked. So yes, let's rewind a little bit. Um, okay, there are, folks will describe category theory in different ways. Um, I'm gonna try to give an analogy that I like, I like to use. So I like to think of category theory as like the Mad Libs of mathematics. So, so Mad Libs, um, for maybe for the benefit of folks listening who, who may not know. Um, a Mad Lib is like a story where some of the words are missing and you get to fill in the, fill in the word. So you, a Mad Lib is like, you know, I went to the blank to buy yada yada. And the blank is like insert a noun to buy and then insert a noun. And you just like randomly pick a noun and then you read the story and it's very funny, haha, ha, all that stuff. Okay, so I think... Um, Category theory is a little bit like that for math. Maybe you have this general template, and depending on what words that you fill into that template, you, you specialize to you know, a specific construction or a specific thing in mathematics. Maybe it's something that you do in differential geometry, but if you flip the words around, like, oh, we also do something similar in topology, and then you flip the words around, you're like, oh, we also do something similar in group theory. Mm -hmm. So if you... So that's interesting, like, oh, why do, why do mathematicians kind of reuse the same ideas and the same tools, but using different language in different fields? So you might, you might say, well, what is that tool? Like, what's the essence of it? Let me mm -hmm. not worry about the details right now, um, but maybe I can just kind of coarse grain things to see what is the fundamental underlying structure, skeleton, mad lib type template that's going on. And category theory provides a language to help you do that. Hmm. Um, and I think that's nice because you can then use that sort of 
Mad lib type language to help identify when two things are really the same. Hmm. Um, and then maybe that can be easier for mathematicians to have conversations because it's like, oh, you're doing that thing and I am too and this is great. Or um, if you have this vehicle to sort of translate one area of math into another, maybe like I, I alluded to earlier, you can maybe transport your ideas across this bridge. You know, maybe a problem is very difficult to solve, you know, in the like world of topology. So you can ship it over to the world of group theory and algebra and use those tools and it's easier to solve there. So uh, category theory kind of organizes this um, phenomenon that we see and it provides a language where everything sort of fits nicely in like a box or something. Maybe you can help me a little bit, I think, because my own relationship with category theory was one of, um, you know, like when you're learning math as an undergrad, you learn something like group theory, like you're describing, you've got this certain language, and you see something similar happening elsewhere, where you're finding maps between special kinds of sets, and then what what's a notion of structure preserving maps there, and they're given like some name here, a lot of them we call them uh, isomorphisms, for some reason off in other fields, they might be given a slightly different name, like linear map or um, uh, something to that effect. And, you know, category theory felt like uh, refactoring your code in a way that was just satisfying saying, oh, okay, we're just going to give the same language to all these things and have something that's the layer of abstraction on top of all these abstract things. But for the longest time, and if I'm honest, I think this even applies to me now, it felt like a nice organizational scheme, but didn't feel especially useful. Uh, it was satisfying. And there's this aesthetic to it in saying, oh, wow, okay, it can kind of use the same language across these things. But I... I struggled to think of a time when you're actually using the statements of category theory to solve a problem. And I know that it must. And maybe the mere fact of organizing someone's thoughts is enough. And one, you know, the way one friend described it to me is said, well, you know, they'll say of category theory that the, uh, it makes the trivial things trivially trivial. <laughs> so you'll have these like various proofs that it's like, you're pretty much just doing the same thing that you were for that proof over in topology, but now you're in group theory. And instead of having to just rewrite all of that stuff, you can just basically point to a particular uh, theorem in category theory. Is there a, an instance as your mind when you feel it's especially useful or it's um, it's helped you solve a problem that otherwise would have been either much messier to solve or maybe even impossible to solve without the right language? Or is it more a matter that it's got this aesthetic organization that feels great and that feeling frees up your mind to think of other things um, it, it like decreases cognitive load such that you're able to solve other problems in a more specific setting. Yeah. Um, so maybe more of the latter. I mean, I can't, yeah, maybe, okay. So maybe category theory has to work on its PR. A little bit. <laughs> um, yes. I mean, I, I, I have heard this question before, like what, what, you know, big problem in math, you know, could, could we only solve by category theory that we couldn't, you know, using the tools of the actual field that, you know, the specific field that we were in? Um, I don't have an example that comes to mind for that. Um, for me, I really like how category theory clarifies things. I mean, I just think that that's delightful in itself. Um, with that said, I can think of non-math let me not say non-math. I can think of not traditional mathy type problems that have come in my own research where category theory helped answer a question that I don't know another branch of math would have answered well. Hmm. Does an example um, come to mind? 
Yeah, an example comes to mind. Uh, it's part of my research, uh, you know, what folks can find on Mathem on the blog or on the archive. Um, it's related to work I did as an undergrad. But uh, OK, so the example that comes to mind relates to uh, some of the work that's being done in artificial intelligence these days, mm-hmm. uh, in particular uh, in natural language processing. You know, we have these really great language models nowadays that can um, generate text in a way that feels very human-like. And the thing that is fascinating to me, um, and this is work that I've done with John Tarilla, who is my graduate advisor, and Yanis Flosopoulos, a mathematician in Greece. Um, so a fascinating question that we have, that we, that, you know, an idea that we thought about is if you ask why these language, these large language models work so well. You know, like they can write a blog post mm-hmm. and it's on online. And at the end, you're like, whoa, that was really interesting. And then surprise, computer <laughs> wrote it. Like a human did not write this, right? Or you can ask it to summarize, you know, a news article and it'll give you a nice three sentence summary. And it's like coherent text. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool. So then the question is, oh, how did the computer learn this? Like, mm. how did it know that these words go together in English? you know, and that it's grammatically correct and it's semantically meaningful. Like, what are we doing to get it to this state? Hmm. Um, well, for, for some of these large language models, the only input really is just like text. Just like, like massive, un- massive corpuses of text. Yeah, massive amounts of text and, and like with no extra structure. Like you don't have to say, okay, this is a noun, hmm. this is an adjective and adjectives go before, like it just learns that. You just say like, read reddit you know or whatever the the data set is and it learns this so that's an extremely interesting math problem okay because in the billions of parameters of this fancy neural network okay some structure is being learned there's like some syntactic structure that's being learned because it's stringing together coherent pieces of text um and, and it's like semantically meaningful so then um the question is like what is that math you know what did you start with you just started with what goes with what, you know, like, you know, red fire truck sped down the f- street quickly. Okay, so these things go together, but like also h- how frequently these things go together. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's interesting. You have like some algebraic structure. If I think of algebra in the basic sense of like taking two things, smushing them together, and getting something new, like x times y is x y. Okay. But I can also have algebraic structure in language. Like I can take red, multiply it by fire truck, i.e. concatenate, and I get red fire truck. Mm. The language has algebraic structure. Um, but there's also like statistical structure, right? You, you, let, you let this large language model read a whole bunch of uh, things in English. So it's like seeing how many times red pairs with fire truck versus, you know, to borrow from Noam Chomsky, something like red idea, a green right. idea. As he yeah. said, like, that's not a thing. Why, why is that not a thing? Well, if I say I had a green idea or a red idea, that's like, oh, that's weird. Uh, that's not something we say often, right? So it doesn't, so even the frequencies of these concatenations contribute to the meanings of these words. But that's all that you have, okay? You have some algebraic structure and you have some statistical structure, and that's all that's in these corpora of text, which mm-hmm. you're feeding to your large language models. And it's an interesting math question to say, like, what is that mathematical structure? Hmm. Um, and it turns out that category theory provides a very nice answer to it. So category theory has ready-made tools to kind of say, 
given a corporate of text, you know, what's like an, you know, a good representation or candidate for the meaning of a word maybe. And there are tools in category theory where you can, you can kind of, you know, propose an answer. But you also have these statistics lying around. So it turns out there's a, there's like a category version two, which, which is called enriched category theory. A, a category um, for the statistical aspect of it? Yeah, that's mm. right. That's right. So, um, I mean, enriched category theory doesn't just have to do with statistics, but it's kind of like if I have two, okay, imagine two vector spaces, right? Mm. Say finite dimensional, so we don't have to think too hard. But imagine <laughs> um, the set of all linear transformations from one to the other. Mm-hmm. Well, that set is more than a set. It itself is a vector space because if I have two linear maps, I can add them together and the mm. result is a linear map. Mm-hmm. But if I have a linear map, I can scale, you know, uh, scalar multiply. Scale. I can multiply. Yep, I can scale it. And that is a linear map. Okay, so I can like add things and, and multiply them by numbers. Well, that's like a vector space structure. Mm-hmm. So when you have like a set of objects is what they're called, vector spaces, it, uh, sorry, if you have a pair of vector spaces and you look at the set of morphisms or maps between them, mm-hmm. um, if that thing itself is more than a set, like in this case, it's a vector space itself, this kind of leads you into the world of enriched category theory. Mm-hmm. What about when the set of ways to get from one thing to another, the set of relationships between one thing to another has more structure than just a set? It's not just mm-hmm. a bag of marbles, but it itself has rich structure. Then, like, you can do category theory on top of the category theory in this way. <laughs> um, but in this case, but back to language, like, imagine instead of two vector spaces, I have two words, like red and two phrases. Let's say red to red fire truck, okay? And I'm going to have an arrow between them because they're related. Red mm-hmm. sits inside the phrase red fire truck. So that's like a yes or no. So in this, in, in the analogy, red is kind of like one of the vector spaces, exactly. and then red fire truck is like the other vector space, totally. or is fire truck like the other vector space? And then uh, the, let's say red fire truck. Okay, and then so the maps from red, the fact that it's a, a member of the other one, uh, yeah. gives you. And then I guess this is going somewhere where the um, the notion of mapping between the maps or having some structure to what all those maps are, and like the very fact that red maps into all these like phrases like red fire truck or red apple tree. Exactly. Um, is like the structure you want to study? Yes, yes. So, so here I'm thinking my, my arrow that goes from red to red fire truck, it's like there's an arrow. It's a set with one element. The one element being the one arrow that mm. indicates red sits inside a red fire truck, right? But maybe there's like a statistical story to that because there's a certain conditional probability that if I tell you, Oh, Grant, I saw a red, <laughs> right? Like with some probability, the next word is going to be fire truck. Right. With yeah. a different probability, it's going to be idea. With a different probability, it's going to be apple, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So there's like probability distribution on English given, you know, that I just said red or something. So I can imagine enriching my arrow with that conditional probability. And this is like what you have with the training data for these large language models. You just know what goes with what. Red goes with fire truck, da 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 da, da. But also like how often, just based mm. on, you know, for example, like frequency counts or, or something. You can maybe learn these, these kind of things. So that's an interesting, I mean, that's like a non-traditional math problem. Like, you know, I didn't, 
I didn't ask like something involving language, Langland's program or like Galois <laughs> theory or something, but I'm right. like, hey, look at what's happening in the world right now. Mm-hmm. And then that motivated a math question, which um, we think has a really nice answer in the language of category theory. And so in this, um, this construct that's trying to give a uh, answer to the question of what's going on in the language models, um, do you feel like it would answer where in that model it learns grammar from the statistics? Because like, for, for example, I mean, one of the, you know, you mentioned Chomsky's green ideas thing, right? I think, what was the full phrase? It was like, colorless green ideas sleep furiously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was this sentence meant to illustrate something that's entirely grammatical. You know, right. we, we all recognize it as a coherent sentence, but they would never show up. Uh, like statistically so unlikely for any given pair of words, like colorless green, that's not going to happen. Green ideas, sleep furiously. Yeah. Um, when you're studying these models and you see some kind of nice structure that explains it, do you feel like there's a point that you can, or a part that you can point to that says, ah, here's where it might learn grammar that would never show up in the statistics. This is what would let it generate a sentence that it never possibly could have seen in the world or seen anything remotely like it, but nevertheless know that it's grammatical in the same way that human brains seem to know that these unlikely things are grammatical. Right, yeah. Um, that's work in progress. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there are steps, like, you know, maybe before even getting something specific like grammar, nouns, verbs, adjectives, you might, you might just ask, like, oh, let's take a step back and, like, where's the syntax being learned? Hmm. Um, and there are ideas for that. Um, we've, we've done work in that direction. Um, you know, you can ask maybe sort of logical type questions, like, uh, you know, if I have two, two words and I have and you know, like red and blue, blah, blah, blah. Like, where's that in the math? Where's that in the category theory? Um, and that turns out, I think we have some good ideas about that, maybe leading one to topos theory type related concepts, which is like where one place where mathematicians like to, to do logic, maybe with a more topological category theoretical flavor. Um, but then, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't see a way yet to have something like, oh, if we understand the math and then, you know, model this some way, you know, in the computer and then say, okay, given, you know, this very nice mathematical structure, give me seven examples of nouns. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't see that yet, but that is a a tantalizing question and certainly one that we we have thought about uh, and and put it on future work. (laughs) And I guess also just sort of stepping back, is this the kind of um, research where you look at the particular kind of models that generates it, you know, the the specifics of the neural network that's doing all of this, or is it more a matter of, in principle, how could anything independent of the implementation details accomplish what's being accomplished here? Yeah, that's right. So it's independent of in- implementation details. So we're just saying, we're just looking at the input, hmm. corpora of text, what's the math there? And then like, sure, you want to learn it with your favorite neural network? Fine, you do that. And you want to use something maybe that's not a neural network, fine, you do that. Maybe, you know, one could be interesting uh, to explore also. But just as like a a nice juicy math problem, (laughs) you know, it's just Mm. what is the structure of the input? Something is being learned, okay? Maybe the details um, one could think about later, but the fact that it's being learned, there's structure there, what is that? Like, what is that math? Mm. Okay, so then backing up in your particular story, you're there third year of grad school, starting to engage with all of this. Um, At what point do you choose what your thesis is going to be about or what uh, like novel things you would like to find during your time as a PhD candidate? 
Yeah. So maybe my uh, experience was a little bit different than, I don't know, like the, I don't even know if there's a typical thing, but you know, some, some students might say, oh, I, I personally really like thinking about this, or I have been thinking about this for a while and I want to continue doing that. And, and, you know, dear professor, can I, can I work on this problem for my thesis under your guidance or something? And maybe you have a flexible, uh, mathematician that'll say, yeah, no problem. Like you do your thing and I'll be here if, if you want help. Um, other other folks um, might might say, you know, please give me a problem, give me something to work on. You know, I just I don't know what to do, but I want to do something. Please, can you guide me? I was a little bit more in that second camp. Mm. Um, so you know, I told you I was like, oh, I like math and physics, la di da di da, but I don't really know what exactly. So um, when when I started working with John um, for my my uh, thesis, I actually thought that I would do something in the space of topology. Hmm. Um, I really love, algebraic topology was my, I loved that class in graduate school. Um, and I, you know, I like pictures. I like math that has pictures attached to it. And so I thought I'd do something along there. And even uh, my oral exam. So in graduate school, you, ha- you take these preliminary exams, these qualifying exams, which are like written exams that you, you must pass to p- progress in the program. And then you have an oral exam, which is where you learn something for like a year, you read a paper or something, and then you present it to a committee and they ask you questions. Even my oral exam topic was closely related to algebraic topology and sort of pure category theory. Um, Had nothing to do with anything we just spent five minutes talking about (laughs) at all whatsoever. Now, at the end of that, um, it was kind of like, okay, Ty, what are you going to do with for your dissertation. Now, at that at that time, it turns out that um, my advisor uh, opened a research startup company in New York, which used or the idea was to basically use tools uh, from the space of quantum mini body physics to build sort of n- new kinds of language models. That and does at the to- seem from out of left field. <laughs> totally, I know. And at that time, um, John said, hey, there are some really interesting math questions behind the scenes here. And believe it or not, they are intimately related to all of the stuff we just talked about with red fire trucks and all that. So he said, why don't you work with us here at this startup tunnel is the name and do, you know, a math problem, do your dissertation on, you know, machine learning, language, physics. Oh, interesting. So as as okay. part of the the startup itself and like yeah. already into industry, that's how yeah. you finish the PhD. Exactly. That's exactly ah, right. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, and was that, at that point, did you have much of a sense of whether in the long run you wanted to be more in industry or more in academia or you kind of were happy to take you wherever the winds blew? Yeah. So at the end of that, um, I kind of felt the same way I did when I finished undergrad. Like, wow, that was just the beginning. I mm. want more, right? <laughs> right? So I think I I enjoyed straddling the line so much. I loved the idea of working in pure math. You know, I get the freedom to think. You know, learn category theory, um, learn you know tools that they're using in in quantum mechanics. I mean, this is so exciting. But then work closely with those who are 
working on the engineering side of things or the applied side of things. So all of that pure math exploration mm -hmm. was kind of always motivated by a very tangible, concrete, non-traditional applied problem. And I liked that a lot. And, and that was like a vehicle also for me to kind of revisit all of the physics-y type interests I had before. So this was, this was perfect for me. I loved like every day grad school was amazing. Now, hmm. at the end of that, I realized I want more of that. I love that. You know, th there's often this like dichotomy, right? Like either you stay in academia or you leave it and you go into industry and like you have to choose one. Um, well, I didn't really choose one in graduate school. I was kind of like happily on the fence uh, <laughs> and thriving, you know, in graduate school. And then towards the end of that, I realized I love that so much. I just want to keep on doing more of that. Like what an exciting place to be. And so did you continue a tunnel at that point? Um, oh, no. So then I graduated. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I, I went on to do a postdoc at, at X, the Moonshot Factory, mm. um, which was really nice. Uh, so some folks there were working on some related things that I, I was doing in graduate school. So it was a really good fit there. Um, and so, you know, uh, <laughs> more of the same. I've been very fortunate to kind of pursue these ideas. I guess I, I don't really have much of a sense of how it works if one does their PhD in a, um, an industrial research lab where like in, in normal industry land, if someone's doing really well and they, you know, maybe they're, let's say, an, a graduate student intern at some company, that company wants to hold on to them and kind of keep them there, which is kind of the opposite of a lot of academia, where as soon as someone finishes their PhD in some institution, it's more desired that they sort of spread the seed and get, get a different sense of what's out there and do their postdoc somewhere else. Uh was there any pressure from Tunnel to kind of hold on to you and keep you there? Or was it a little bit more the usual academic vibe of make sure that you get a diversity of experiences, different research groups uh, and all of that? We've loved having you, but like it's we're, we're like, OK, OK, letting go of the investment we put into you. Right, right. Yeah. So so um, so John uh, was is very like great advisor. And, and I think saw, you know, beyond just tunnels interest but as a as a fantastic uh, thesis advisor you know kind of in charge of a student he was very much like I want you to go out there and like flourish elsewhere mm. you know it'd be great to stay here but also for your own you know growth as a mathematician it would be good his encouragement to me was it was it would be good for you to go you know and have new experiences meet new people and do new things um, and I, I just love that you know as I love a that student too. yeah amazing yeah and and have you found that at X? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. So I um so I'm currently I I'm on a team called Sandbox at Alphabet, uh, which is a it's an independent unit at Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google. On on my team, there are physicists and engineers that are working sort of at the intersection of, um, or I should say, scientists. Lots of scientists and engineers working at the intersection of physics and AI. Hmm. Um, and on that team, I'm there. Um, but what's amazing is that I, I actually have the freedom to pursue my own mathematical interests and my own uh, academic research program. So in that sense, it's very much like a traditional math postdoc. You know, mm. you go to a university and you come in with a re research statement. And you're like, you know, here's the things I did in graduate school. And I have so many other things to explore. Bam, bam, bam. Here's how I'm going to do it. Um, so what's amazing is that I, I have the freedom to do that there, but while surrounded by exceptionally amazing people, uh, you know, also uh, from from academia, some physicists, 
uh, but then also great engineers, um, all working on, on, you know, building cool technologies. And so I think that that's a really cool place to be because I still have all of my collaborators, you know, from the math world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we meet on Zoom or however one does these days. Uh, but then, you know, I, I log off my math, uh, you know, calls and then I'm, you know, join the team meeting. And then there's all of these awesome people outside of the world of mathematics. And I think that that's really vibrant uh, and exciting. Yeah, mm. I, I have to be honest. I feel like I'm one of those people where when I hear, especially from companies, descriptions of blending AI with blank, I often get really skeptical, you know, say we're going to, we're working on the frontiers of quantum computation and artificial intelligence. <laughs> and usually in the back of my mind, I'm like, ah, that sounds like some, some real BS right there, just <laughs> finding the right buzzwords. And from the outside looking in, if I hear, you know, these descriptions, we're taking tools from quantum physics and we're applying them to language models. I'd be like, ah, are those related? <laughs> but then I looked at your thesis and mm-hmm. that was actually one of the most clarifying moments where I said, oh, oh, I get it. This is actually a highly approachable way to see why... Um, it's the math that underlies some of this quantum physics that helps you do some useful things there. And, and I actually do think the math of quantum physics is like really elegant in a way that feels strange to confine just to the realm of physics. Uh, if you were to give, I don't know, just a little bit of a defense to a skeptic who, outside looking in, hears these descriptions of, we're going to take this pile of scientists and we're going to like throw them at AI because both of those sound like cool things. Um, <laughs> and you needed to say, like, no, here, here's why it's actually useful. Here's why this is a coherent way to approach the problem. Uh, and I, I know you have an answer because your thesis at the very least contains one. What, what would you say to them? Well, so I, I'm going to imagine that the, this question from this hypothetical person, uh, is addressed to, let's say the math underlying the physics that appears in my work. Cause I don't, let me not speak for sort of the totality of all ways that all physics is applied, sure. pretending to be to, applied to AI. Um, so uh, you know, how would I describe this? So, okay. In AI and machine learning, um, you're working with lots and lots of data, right? So you've kind of working in this large dimensional vector space, maybe. Now in quantum mini body physics, okay, let's not even use the word quantum. In physics, when you've got a lot of like little things going on, you got a lot of, little, lot of little particles and maybe they're each doing their own thing and you're like, whoa, what's the conglomeration doing? Okay, this is like a lot of stuff and it also has a lot of data. Now, linear algebra turns out to be a really nice set of tools to kind of organize what's going on here. Um, so in that sense, there are some tools that have been used in this branch of physics and it's kind of like well why can't we also repurpose them over here in ai like i don't mm-hmm. i don't need to know anything about electrons to know what an operator a linear operator is maybe it's like is her mission i don't know it's a density operator whatever it's a matrix that satisfies some properties and i can learn what those properties are i can learn what that definition is and i can like prove things with it and i can do that without any knowledge of like scary physics-y type interpretations. Those are helpful too, and f- physicists know a lot about that. And if I need to know something about it, I can ask, I can ask them. So it turns out that some of those tools um, are really useful actually in dealing with, with large dimensional data. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, there, there's a great uh, physicist at the Flatiron Institute, Miles My, Studenmeyer, he's one of my collaborators. And I like how he puts it, like, you know, 
Maybe some of these mathematical tools that the physicists are using are actually just the right way to do linear algebra in high dimensions. Yeah. Um, and some things, that you know. That seems like a beautiful way to phrase it, actually. This yeah, is what really I love it. Through. I love it. And he's a physicist, right? So I'm like, okay, if he can say it, then I can repeat it. Like, it's totally <laughs> fine, right? Um, or, you know, <laughs> some there are some things in physics which, like, maybe the physicists happen to stumble upon it first historically. So just historically, it's always like, oh, those are the tools that the physicists use. I'm, I'm thinking now about probabilities, right? Like, mm -hmm. what's a probability distribution? Well, it's like a bunch of non-negative numbers that add up to one. Okay, but in physics, if you want to if you want to ask something about probability, you have these kind of funny things called probability amplitudes, right? So you're like, how does that go again? Oh, yeah. You can have complex numbers now, or maybe even negative numbers, but how do we get probabilities from them? Well, we say you take like the modulus squared, and mm -hmm. then if those numbers add up to one, you, you get a probability distribution that way. Now, it turns out that that way of thinking about probability connects really well with linear algebra. And you can kind of repurpose those ideas in the context of machine learning and language. And that's actually what I wrote about in my thesis. Uh, but I like this perspective that, that Miles and others ha has, which is maybe that's the right way to do probability theory. Like, why should the physicists, you know, have ownership of that? Who's mm -hmm. this, like, who's going to start? mathematicians from thinking about probability differently and if we do like who knows what we can find like who knows what new ideas might be out there um and so i i like that so if i were to you know uh give like a, i don't know an, an answer to this question of like why are we doing kind of this this stuff that feels a little bit um i don't know over the top um, it's really just you're having access to more mathematical tools. And, I, and in my thesis, I try to say something like, you don't have to be a physicist. Don't worry about like the word quantum, blah, de, blah, de, blah. Like, just forget that. Like, we're just doing mathematics here. And there are a new set of tools. And like, let's see what we can do with those things. Forget about all that phys physics stuff for the purposes of our goals. Like, it's not really mm -hmm. uh, necessary that, that one comes in with all of that knowledge ahead. So I think that maybe, you know, it's a fun playground. There's no tools. Why not? Let's explore. And I mean, just the way that you wrote the thesis, actually, you kind of alluded to it there where it's meant to be uh, much more inclusionary. Uh, it actually, it feels a lot different from most other theses that I've read out there that have a sense more that they're like trying to hold up the, the writer themselves and like, this is why I'm deserving of yeah. the academic accolades. And thus, let me not, um, you know, uh, bore the reader with details of exposition. That, that's not exactly the case. That's not fair to many. But yours seemed like it was really this um, uh, document that was meant to be, it could almost be a blog post. It was meant mm. to be like put out there that uh, anyone without necessarily background in there could read. Very substantive, right? Very substantive, but also strong motivating examples. Was that a very conscious thought while you were writing it that you wanted it to stand out from other theses in that way? Is that just how you write naturally and you can't help yourself? <laughs> No, so that was very conscious. So I definitely did that on purpose. I put a lot of work into making that. I wanted it to be read by lots of people. I wanted it to be accessible to lots of people. I was totally aware that this is not how PhD theses are done. And I was also like, I don't care because I want the world to know all that. of this cool stuff. I absolutely love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's so much great math out there, but it's like hidden behind this dense fog of formality, you know, and jargon. And I think sometimes that sort of hides the ideas. And I had so much fun 
exploring the ideas I did during graduate school. I wanted other people to be excited with me. You know, um, people talk about pity parties, but there's also like excitement parties. And it's not <laughs> fun to just be by yourself in an excitement party. I wanted lots of people <laughs> to be with me. Yeah. And so, so I wrote this thesis hoping that I could lure people, lure people into these ideas. Um, I don't know how well I, I accomplished that, but my goal was really, I wanted it to be, you know, able to be read by more than just the experts, you know, on my, on my committee, but I wanted lots of folks to have access to the ideas. And how was it received both by that committee and then by the broader public? Or yeah, well, I folks? think the committee was okay with it because I, I graduated, so it, <laughs> it couldn't have been so bad. Um, yeah, and I, I did get a lot of nice feedback uh, from, from folks even that I hadn't, I haven't met before, you know, emailing me, um, which has been really nice. I also made a video. I shouldn't be talking about videos to the master. <laughs> On the I contrary. <laughs> it was a great I, video, the one about oh, your thesis. Yeah, I made like this 10-minute video clip, uh, kind of like a trailer or a commercial video. It was outstanding. I wish every PhD student did this, created a little 10-minute <laughs> trailer of their thesis. Thanks, thanks. It was one of the most amazing things I'd seen. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is... What? <laughs> I, I genuinely want more people to do this now because yeah. one of the things I like the best is that you said like, ah, oh, you can skip this section. If you really want to get the heart of it, go here. If you want to go more detail, it was like yeah. this roadmap ahead of time, which a good paper will do in its introduction. And so yeah. to be fair, that this is often like where people will do that kind of preview, but something about, I don't know, the friendliness of the way that you were talking about it and kind of the doodles that surrounded it. It gave it a very different tone than most, mm. most others out there. Yeah, I, you know, I, I kind of envisioned, um, you know, I'm sure we've all had like those great teachers that say, here, read this book, you know, mm -hmm. or read this paper. And they're like, look, skip chapter three, like you don't need to know about that. And look, when you get to section 7.2, it's totally fine if you don't understand it, because we'll talk about it later in my office. Mm -hmm. So I just imagine, I really appreciate things like that. So that when I get to chapter three, I'm like, oh my goodness, what is this craziness? I wish I could skip it, but I'm going to feel bad if I don't because I'm supposed to know everything, right? Mm -hmm. But if someone tells you ahead of time, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Like, you'll live. We'll get through it together. I like that. So I kind of envisioned that. I mean, I wanted to do that, right, for, for people reading my thesis, if they're going to really, I don't know, who reads PhD thesis? Like, <laughs> do you do this in your in the morning when you have coffee? I don't know, not normal people, but for the few people that <laughs> I could, you know, convince to please read this work. <laughs> Worked on me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Great. Then I, I imagine it might be helpful if I also like sit alongside them and say, I know 130 pages kind of is a lot. Maybe it's not compared to 600 page theses, but it's it's like more than a blog post. Mm -hmm. um, and so let me just give you the big picture um, perspective so that there's like, hey, you may not know this, so I'm going to tell you now. Maybe there's like a golden thread through my thesis, and I want you to be aware of that. So when you read it, you know that, oh, she's writing about this in this section because she really has this larger goal in mind. So glad she told me because now I can kind of make sense of what feels confusing on this page. Mm -hmm. um, I could have done that in writing, I guess, like a, as, a, as a prologue or something, but there was so much writing already. Maybe your, your eyes get tired, like, oh, I have to read five extra pages now. But there's something, as you know, friendly about a video you just kind of sit back in your chair you know you you hit play and let let the speaker do the work and i i like that i hadn't really made videos before i love your videos of course i don't really know how to make like super technical fancy videos so i just got out my ipad and hand drew some stuff and i was like well let's see how this goes <laughs> i actually think the hand-drawn style um is 
in many ways a lot better it's a closer reflection of what actually doing math feels like oh, and then yeah. it feels like a little bit of a, a human connection there yeah, um, yeah. I, I guess if you wanted to summarize I, I guess we kind of already have hit on some of the topics in there but describe a little bit of what was in that thesis to a listener um, I realize maybe this is redundant with the preview that you've already made uh, how would you try to encapsulate some of the key ideas yeah so right how do i do this okay so i think if i had like an elevator pitch type description okay so let me let me back up the title of the thesis is at the interface of algebra and statistics so we talked about algebra and statistics in the context of language earlier um the interface because that's an interesting place to be. We talked about that earlier, kind of bridges between two worlds. I like living there. Um, but uh, maybe one thing I could say is that this thesis was still in a quest to understand this structure in natural language. It was motivated mm. by that. Um, pre the category theory ideas that we talked about earlier, there's a much simpler question that one could ask. Um, which is if I have, um, a large system of things, okay, like maybe, you know, a book, uh, your favorite book, I don't know. Let's go. Moby Dick. Sure. Moby Dick, why not? <laughs> or whatever, right? Or maybe even something simpler like, you know, um, a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. Oh, I love Calvin and Hobbes. Who yes. Calvin I could never Hobbes. like someone if they didn't like Calvin and Hobbes. Exactly. I know, right? <laughs> um, okay, but you have like some systems of thing some system of things and they're like interacting with each other. I don't know. Maybe these are words in English and you know, the meaning or the first word in your favorite book, um, you know, or a long joke correlates to the last word, like the punchline of the joke mm. or the final conclusion in your book. Like even these those these things are spaced spaced far apart, you know, mm. um, they, they still ha have meaning. They're, they're closely related. Um, anyway, so you have like the system of interacting stuff. Maybe there's some correlations and you might want to know, hey, if I like zoom in to a little piece of it, like maybe I have a sentence, maybe it, we're reading a Calvin and Hobbes comic and, and Calvin, you know, says something to Hobbes about his red fire truck. Oh, there's my example again. Okay, can't get away from it. Right. <laughs> so, so I like zoom in into a little piece. Like there's this long dialogue, but in it there's this one phrase or maybe like, you know, one sentence in a longer dialogue. And I'd like to know how does that small thing interact with its larger environment? Okay. Um, in math, we have, we have this idea of marginalization. Like if I have a probability distribution, you know, on two things, I can kind of close my eye to one half and like marginalize over it. And now I have probabilities on this smaller thing. So this is marginal probability. Mm -hmm. um, classically, when you do this, you have lost information about this complementary subsystem. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like marginal probability doesn't know about the thing you kind of integrated out. Turns out it, um, in, in quantum physics and linear algebra, there's an analogous way to do that that actually retains information about all of this stuff that you ignored. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that that information um, tells you a lot about this system that you're working with. And you can actually kind of build back up what you started with in a better way um, that I'm totally being vague and 
Nobody that, understands I, so what I'm talking about at this point. I think anyone has to acknowledge that in a podcast medium, there is uh, a struggle for describing any of these things very literally because it's totally. intrinsically visual and symbolic. Um, yeah. And I guess maybe in this context, you know, one of the examples that you had in your thesis was if you have uh, like adjective noun phrases, right? yeah. you've got you, not just your like your red fire truck, but also your green apple and things like yeah. that. But you can have a distribution for all these phrases. And you could say, just what's the likelihood of seeing a particular adjective like red yeah. and ask about, you know, the distribution on those. Or you could ask about what's the probability of seeing all the different nouns. And then somehow each time you limit your view there. You like forget everything about the adjectives when you're just looking yeah. at the nouns. You forget everything about the nouns when you're looking at the adjectives. Um, but I don't know. There's these really elegant constructions in quantum mechanics and quantum information whereby you you shift your perspective, but without losing anything, which is I never really thought about that as, a, as an application to probability. It was just one of those things that happens in quantum information. You say, oh, I guess, yeah, this is an elegant way of doing it. Yeah. But the thought of then applying that to anything else like language personally i found that a little bit mind-blowing that it's a very clever bridging between two seemingly unrelated uh, sets of ideas yeah um you just summarized the work brilliantly thank you i was struggling and you brought us back home so you're yeah listener just listen to what grant said he just summarized my thesis well thank you <laughs> well literally i was reading it this morning so <laughs> I, I think honestly it's fresher in my mind than it might be in yours yeah i was like what did i write a year ago <laughs> no that was great thank you um so uh talk to me a little bit about the blog mathema and what yeah. made you start it and then um if you had goals with it whether or not you felt like those goals were achieved. Yeah, so I started Mathema in 2015 in February of that year, which was my second semester of graduate school. Hmm. And I started the blog really because I wanted to pass those qualifying exams I was telling you about. Hmm. So um, the first year or two of graduate school kind of feels a lot like undergrad in most programs in the sense that you're just taking classes, you have exams, midterms, finals. Um, but at the end, courses are typically a two-semester course, like topology, you know, class one, topology, class two, first semester, second semester. At the end of that, you have these written exams that are like a big final exam from the previous year of all of the stuff that you learned in that class. Now, I, I wanted to pass these exams, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, and I, I happen to learn really well by writing things down. So mm -hmm. some people are, you know, visual learners, others are auditory. For me, I, I need to, I need to like have the ideas flow from my mind into my hand onto a piece of paper for me to remember it. Mm -hmm. um, and I also came, so, so, so in other words, I would take a lot of notes during school, right? So I'm in class, I am... You know, the professor's on the board writing stuff, proving theorems, and I'm like frantically copying stuff down. I don't really learn math well in real time. Um, so if, if you're at the board saying something, I kind of, I often wish that there was like a real, a, a, a life remote where I could just pause <laughs> you in real time right. and say like, okay, you just said let blah, blah, be a yada, yada. And then you made this conclusion, but my brain hasn't gotten there yet. So I, like, yeah. I would want to pause, right? But I can't pause in class. I can't tell the professor, hey, sorry. I know you guys are like, you got this. not until but... technology catches up. <laughs> hey, yeah. 
It would be great having some, there's just a giant screen that the professor is looking at. And if there's a pause symbol on it, enough yes. students have clicked the button. They're like, oh, okay, I'll just go get a sip of water then. And then <laughs> exactly. all the students like click the little play button on their seats. Like, oh, I can continue. Thanks. Ex- yeah. Would that be great? Yeah. Because yeah. people are but afraid to say, can you like slow I down? Yeah. I know. I know. So, so, um, so I certainly did not have the courage to, to ask the professor to pause, you know, for all 15 other students or, or something. So I would go home and I would actually rewrite the notes that I took in class. Mm. And the reason I would do that is because I would write a sentence, you know, I'd look at my notes. Okay, well, the pre- professor said this, you know, here's the proof of this theorem. I'd, and I'd write the first sentence. And then I'd realize, wait a second, I didn't understand that first sentence. Mm. You know, I don't remember, for example, what like... I don't know. What's a quotient group really? Like we're, we got this blank mod yada yada, but like what is that thing? Mm. So I'd write that down. By the process of writing, I would realize, oh, I don't know this idea. I mean, I thought I knew it or I thought I could like superficially know it and, and sort of shove it under the rug, but I cannot per- proceed from the first sentence of this proof to the second one without filling in this gap. Mm-hmm. So by the process of writing things down, I would identify what I did not know. And I wouldn't, go on to write the next sentence until I filled up that gap hmm. and got that bit of knowledge that I didn't understand. And sometimes it's something I genuinely didn't know. Like, you know, they might cite another theorem and maybe I don't remember what that theorem was because I don't know, for whatever reason. So then I have to go learn that. Or maybe it's something that I thought I knew. Like, oh, I thought I had the intuition for this math construction. But if I truly understood what it was, then I wouldn't be struggling with this other proof. Yeah, because so, often there's so many different layers at which you understand something. Absolutely, absolutely. The like quotient group is a perfect example. Yeah, you can read yeah. the definition and then much later be like, oh, wait, like this is what the what idea should be in mind. Right, right, The fact right. that they're so different. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mentioned I came into math very late in the game. Mm-hmm. So I think I had... Um, less experience than maybe some of my other classmates. So in other words, things I was seeing for the first time, maybe they saw previously when they took graduate classes, you know, as an undergrad or or something like that. Um, I'll give you an example. I took abstract algebra my first semester, first year of graduate school. Hmm. The first, okay, not to scare people. The first two or three weeks of that class covered everything I knew about algebra, group theory, that I learned in undergrad. Mm. So grad school went very fast for me. And I realized to to pass these exams a year from now, I can't just get by with like memorizing things or having a superficial understanding. I needed to have a deep intuitive understanding of the mathematics. And for me, the only way that I could do that was to take this very slow approach sort of line by line, make sure I deeply understand this concept. Because once I have that sort of deep holistic understanding, then like, yeah, I can figure out the other stuff. Like, if, I think the, the key for me was I had to first identify what I did not know. Mm. And the process of writing, um, writing these little expositions to myself helped me identify that. And oftentimes, oftentimes what would happen, there would be an idea which felt so complicated to me during class. I would do all of this work after 
And then realize the idea is so simple. <laughs> it's so beautiful. You could have like, you know, we, we could have used this like car at a stoplight analogy to explain this idea. What's all this other mumbo jumbo? So then I'd write this little exposition to myself, explaining the math the way I wish it had been explained to me the first time. Mm. You know, that light bulb moment. Yeah. So I would do this for my classes. And so over time, I'd accumulate these, these little, these notes, like these little expositions. So then I eventually thought, well, maybe there are other people also taking, you know, algebra or topology, also about to pass their qualifying exam. So maybe I could put this online and maybe it would be helpful for them. Mm -hmm. That's really how I started Mathema because I was doing all of this work, you know, on my own time. I thought there's no way I could have been the only person that was stumped in like the yeah. Burrell Cantelli lemma or something. So maybe I'll, I'll write a blog post about this. To be honest, I was very nervous really? when I started. Oh my goodness, yes. I think my first blog post... Um, it's very apologetic blog post. It's not even about math yet. I think the title in February 2015, the title is, I think, a math blog say what? So I, was, <laughs> I was thinking, what, what? Why are you taking up space on the internet with your silly math blog? Nobody likes math. And certainly nobody, nobody likes advanced math at the graduate. Like you're just talking to like your mom. Maybe your mom's going to read your blog and nobody else. I was just putting this stuff out there. I was a little bit nervous because... Mm. Because I'm being very transparent, right? Like I'm saying, yeah. hey, I did not know this thing. Mm. And now I, I think I know it. I don't know. What do I know? I'm a first-year graduate student. I don't know. I really don't know anything. But I'm going to write this, and I'm going to put this out on the internet. And like maybe it'll help a couple of other students. But if it's wrong, I'm really sorry because I'm still learning myself. So I was very nervous when I started this. I actually think that makes it better, though. I mean, this is actually yeah. something that came up in... Um, a previous interview with do you know mithana yoga nathan by chance no. have you actually runs a, a channel about uh like quantum physics among other things but she started the channel while doing grad school and it was wow. actually a very similar thing where it was um trying to come to grips with certain fundamental ideas by explaining them to others and i think the term we came to was to describe it as discovery journalism oh, and so yeah oh i yeah. love that like there's not a term for it, but by giving it a term, it kind of legitimizes the genre that you are actually an expert at. Yeah. Um, and I think for a reader, it w one is actually a lot more comforting to feel like you're, you said this earlier, talking about how inviting it is when your advisor said, let's learn this together. Right? Let's, let's mm -hmm. take this category thing. Let's learn it together. Mm -hmm. Even though he's the expert and in the back of your mind, you're like, yeah, really, but it's you're teaching me um, <laughs> right. in the same way. If I'm reading your blog and it has this feeling of let's learn this together and yeah. like you're the expert and you're teaching me, but somehow that actually feels a lot more inviting than saying, oh, let me tell you how things yeah. work from on high. Um, because, uh, I, I, I can enlighten you with what right. follows. So, but nevertheless, I get the nervousness because that is a very, um, I don't know, it's a very exposed thing to do. Yeah. And did you find yourself getting more comfortable a a as you went on or a year or yeah. two into it? Did it have the same feeling of um, bearing your soul? Yeah. So I was probably, so okay, confession. I was probably still like the same amount of nervous up until like the fourth or fifth year mm. at Mathema. <laughs> so, so what, it's been around for six years now. Maybe like in the last year, probably when I graduated. I think when I graduated from grad school, I was like, oh, okay, maybe I really can do this. Mm. Uh, at which point I was like, well, I have written, you know, f five years worth of stuff and I haven't like, you know, spontaneously caught on fire or anything and like no one, I didn't <laughs> cause any major issues or maybe I did, no one told me about it. So maybe it's okay 
uh, to like continue doing this. And I got a lot of positive feedback from folks basically all over, which has been really encouraging for me. Um, people sending emails and saying, you know, oh, I was studying for for my qual and your blog post on this topic really helped me. Thank mm. you so much. I mean, I get a lot of those and it's really touching. I really, I really appreciate that. So I think the more feedback I got um, from folks, the more I realized, oh, maybe I'm not the only one that kind of felt that math is a little bit scary, a little bit intimidating. And in fact, you know, it's it seems to be helpful to like acknowledge that publicly so mm. that other students don't feel that they have to hold maybe their intimidations or their concerns inside. But when you see that someone else is saying, no, 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 math is hard. Like it's totally fine. Cause that's just is what it is. I mean, also, you know, you're like exploring the language of the universe. It can't be that easy. Like <laughs> you're <laughs> yeah. in good company. So it's, it's hard, but it's right. also fun and exciting. So anyways, when I got more feedback, I think, I think just like the maturity of progressing in graduate school, learning more, kind of building my math muscles and then getting just, you know, emails and pings from folks all over saying, oh, this was really helpful. Thank you. I think that kind of slowly chipped away at my nervousness and, and like stoked the confidence fire a little bit. Well, let me let me throw one more into the batch and say for myself, thank you for writing all of the, what you have written because it's actually uh, exceedingly helpful. There's been lots of ideas that I was confused by, but looked at your blog and it just had a very approachable um way to like get at the heart of something oh thank you that's great for, for others who are feeling that same level of nervousness and they might want to write something maybe they want to make a video they want to give talks on it how would you advise getting past those nerves or is there a way other than just just kind of do it yeah maybe just do it i don't think i think the only thing that kind of cured my nerves was just time you know time mm. and experience i think something that um help me when I was blogging, you might have two different perspectives. Like if you want to write something and, and put it out there, um, there are kind of t two ways you could approach, approach that. You could say, hey, I learned this thing and I want you to know about it. So I'm going to like, I want to bring you along with me in my joy and my excitement. So I'm going to, you know, come over to you and like, let's do this together. Like, like you were saying. The other, the other thing, um, the other perspective someone might have is to say, hey, what do people want to know about? Mm. Do you want to know about this topic? Like what's out there that, that's confusing people? Um, and then like, can I, can I write, write about that? I think the second option is trickier. And if this conversation is making sense to people, I might suggest leaning more towards the first one. Because if you're not, if you're not excited or passionate about something, and you're kind of just doing it to like, what do they want to hear? Okay, I'll like, you know, like, you know, the masses kind of change, they ebb and flow. And you may not feel very excited or motivated to write about a certain topic. But if you're doing it so that you can like, you know, I don't know, get lots of clicks or something, I think people can see through that. And That's such good you know, advice. Yeah. And on the other hand, if you are very passionate about something, um, I think that folks can often see that passion and that excitement. I think that's can be very contagious, you know? So if, if you can see, quote unquote, the joy in someone's eyes as they're trying to explain something to you, mm -hmm. even if that thing is very complicated, almost just the like contagiousness of that excitement brings you along like, oh, I want to know what you, <laughs> you know. That sounds really cool. Yeah. Um, so I, I would almost say, you know, how do, how do you get over the nervousness? Well, look, are, did you learn something in school today that you think is really exciting? 
go stand on the mountaintops and tell it to everybody. Um, and I think that they will just see your excitement and that like aha moment, that realization that you had. I'm sure that there are lots of other people that haven't had that light bulb moment go off. But if you share it with others and they kind of see your passion, I think that helps the math come alive. And maybe you just like, um, instead of thinking about all of the pe people in the audience, you know, or like, what's the trick? Like you imagine everyone like forgot to put their pants on. That's supposed <laughs> sure. to calm your nerves. Don't do that. Just focus. Never made me less nervous. <laughs> yeah, right. Like it's weird. <laughs> but yeah, but rather than thinking about like, oh, I'm going to publish this thing and who is it going to go to? And like, what are my Google Analytics? That? Like, don't worry about that. That's not why you're doing this anyway. You're doing this because you just had a great, you know, yeah. aha moment. You realize something awesome about mathematics and you want to share it with others. So I think that like, where did, where, where is your perspective? Like, what are you focusing on? Is it the math or is it like, you know, I don't know, the, the, the people that it's going to. I think the latter kind of takes your eyes in, in a distracting direction. Um, so I, I think, like, what's what fundamentally drew you into math? Like, where do your passions lie? What was your original spark of joy? Hmm. If you keep that at the front of your mind, you know, all the other stuff, it takes care of itself. This, uh, this might seem like a totally unrelated analogy, but if I think of um, nerves and getting started with something, when I was in high school, I, uh, I did some like busking, some street musician stuff where my brother and I both played like violin. And at some point oh. we lived in Park City, Utah. So the Sundance Film Festival was this thing that brought in tourists. And my brother was much more outgoing than me. He's like, we should go on the street and like put out a case and like play some songs. And I was definitely much more nervous. Um, but eventually after he graduated, I just kept doing it on my own. Mm -hmm. And But I, I, I was still very nervous. And like, there's two things that I actually think parallel in the world of maybe writing blogs that are expositional, even though they seem unrelated. One was the um, the power of just starting. So I had one particular song that I felt comfortable with. Mm. I'm like, okay, I'll just start with it. And inevitably after you kind of start, which is a weird thing because you're standing out on a street and there's like a bunch of people walking around. And you're like, I will now introduce <laughs> some sound into the environment. Um, right. But once you get started, then it, it like feels normalized in yourself. Uh, and I don't know if you felt this with blogging, but I felt it with videos where like after I'm maybe 10% into a project, the project has this momentum that really yeah. helps me run with it. But then the other thing was um, if I was looking at what causes the most tips, what causes people to actually throw money into the case and mm -hmm. things like that, um, it actually seemed less correlated with the musical quality of what was being played and a little bit more with if I was... I don't know, like being passionate into it, right? I'm like closing my eyes while playing something or getting into it as opposed to just being like, yeah, I'm just kind of here doing a thing. Right. Um, and like people index off of that. And there's something where by seeing someone else that seems really into the music, that almost makes them want to be. And I think, again, that kind of shines through with some of this exposition where independent of the topic matter itself on whether someone was interested ahead of time, the same way independent of a song, if someone recognized the song ahead of time, if there's a sense that it's something others care about, in particular, the author cares about it. Yeah. Well, because the other thing that would like cause more tips is if there's a little bit of a crowd and you like see evidence of others there. Yeah. So yeah. that that's a little yeah. bit harder to have control over in terms of if you are the blog, like simulating a view of an audience who's there right. and engaging with it, maybe a comment right. section. Yeah. Um, but both of those, I, yeah, I do think carry over. Just, just there is a momentum to getting started and there is an authentic authenticity that people can detect. Uh, and between those, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of ground that can be covered because a lot of people out there have these beautiful insights. They kind of keep to themselves and maybe they were thinking about blogging. Maybe they were thinking about making a video, but you just never really get around to it. It's yeah. Yeah. It's kind yeah. of hard. Yeah. That, that I like that real life analogy. And that's a good point about just getting started. Um, 
Yeah, good good advice. I find that is definitely true for me. Um, not just in writing, but also like in public speaking. Mm, you know, God, I think, yeah. But why is that hard? <laughs> yeah, that is really hard. Um, but I I think kind of like you playing playing music and like once you get in the flow, it's kind of like yeah, this is going good. Like let's keep going. Who cares who's <laughs> listening? Like this is a beautiful song. And I think right. I, I'm certainly like like that with with public speaking too. I definitely get nervous. At, you know, the first five minutes, and then I kind of warm up. So maybe the same with writing too. Do you do a lot of public speaking now? Um. Kind of, yeah. Well, okay. COVID public speaking, like on Zoom, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but more like for research talks. Mm. So, so more for like you know math audiences, maybe at a seminar or, or a conference. Not, not so much general audience talks now. Yeah. Nice. Um, and then, as a very last circle of thoughts before I wrap yeah. things up here, you mentioned at the beginning how at the um, earlier phases of your life, your relationship with math was very different. You know, it's this kind of um, annoying thing that maybe you could win the game of, but it didn't ignite any sparks. If you, I don't know, if you could go back in time to younger Ty and try to like inspire her in that way, um, or to any other student who's out there and kind of has that same general feeling with it, like what should we be doing? Like teachers or parents or things like that. What, what should the general world who cares about math education be doing that would have ignited that spark in young Ty? uh in a way that never never happened until calc three yeah so i think um so i think what what did it for me um is something that a lot a lot of great math educators have have thought about before and have great insights so um in some sense maybe this is above my pay grade but i'll say from personal experience the the thing that i really enjoyed was this explicit communication that math is more than it might appear to be when you're stuck in the weeds and you're like, oh, what's the quadratic formula? How do I add fractions? Like it feels very dry. It feels very like rote memorization kind of you get an A if you can follow this procedure. Mm. And Often that's how math is taught in schools, which maybe implicitly communicates to the students that that's what math is. It's a bunch of procedures and you do well when you can obey those procedures, even if you don't think like you don't have to understand, you know, what multiplication means to complete a times table properly. And really, maybe the teacher doesn't know whether you understand conceptually mm. what it means or not, because they just see that you answered all of the questions correctly. So getting the right answer is sometimes accidentally substituted for understanding, right? But just because you have an A in something does not mean that you understood it deeply. So I think um, what really helped me was someone saying that explicitly. Mm. This is not understanding. I remember my, my calc teacher, he once told me, he said, I would much rather have a student get a C and thoroughly understand the math by the end of the class mm. than if they have an A and come away with no understanding. I was like, what? That does not compute with <laughs> how I thought grades worked. What do you and mean? What is this? That's possible, right? That yeah. there is this disconnect between getting the correct answer and understanding. Yes, yes. So I think, and you know, maybe this was communicated to me earlier and maybe like my brain just wasn't ready to accept it. I don't know. 
I think um, you can kind of, it's, it sort of sounds like BS if you're a student where you're in high school and someone says, oh, you know, don't worry about the grades too much. Just wow. try to understand yeah. it. Or like, trust us, math is beyond this. It gets applied to the real world. Take a look at the word problems <laughs> in the back of the book. And the student looks at the word problems and, yeah. you know, it's about Alice and Bob trading apples <laughs> with each other. And they're like, this, honestly, I'm fine with my apple trading issues. Yeah, right. uh, Especially when you have like 103 of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, yeah. It, it, I think it's a hard, it's a harder question than is easy to give credit for because everyone does try in their own ways. And I think a lot of times if we were to zoom back to like math classes that happen that people feel uninspired by, yeah. I think you look at the teacher behind it, they've just got a million things going on and it's yeah. like hard enough just to manage the current situation. Yeah. And there's sort of a lot, it's very easy to say like, oh, if only all more math teachers were like this or if, if everyone yeah. did that. Yeah. Like half the time they actually are doing a kind of inspiring thing or right. they're trying their hardest, but they're working right. within a strangely confined system. Exactly. Um, I almost think a little bit of what we were talking about before where you find yourself blogging as a grad student. I don't see any reason a high school student shouldn't blog or try to write expositional material about what they're learning. Right. Right. I mean, imagine if there were a blog post on like the comparison test. Yeah. Right. Like how helpful would that have been? <laughs> um, I certainly did, didn't see that. I mean, I, ha I had a teacher to explain it, but even just take. Yeah. So I think so maybe towards answering your question. Yeah. Like saying explicitly, you know, hey, there's more to math than just this stuff or, or whatever. Um, but I think I, I really like this idea of translating from math to English, like taking something that seems like a technical idea. Mm -hmm. And there's like a bunch of symbols and like what we were working with numbers and now we have the English alphabet and now you want to put in Greek letters. Like this is way, like what is this? This is not math anymore. Uh, but showing explicitly, maybe by taking very simple ideas to explain these more complicated topics and making an effort to do that. Mm. Um, I think, I mean, like you do on your channel, taking very complex ideas and sort of breaking them down in accessible ways. Um, it's hugely valuable, hugely valuable. And like you said, it's, it's, I think it's very possible that maybe my teachers prior to, you know, Calc 3 were doing that and maybe my brain was just <laughs> not ready to accept it at that time. Um, but for the most part, I just really remember math as being this very dry, robotic, boring, ghastly thing. And it wasn't until I saw explicitly these sort of friendly, simple ideas that were being represented by the symbols. And I think those ideas made an impression on me because it suggested that to do math, you just need a brain. <laughs> like if math is just about thinking thoughts, I have a brain and I can think thoughts. Mm. Uh, and that was hugely important to me rather than this, this other thing, which I felt math was like um, this field where you are applauded for pushing around symbols quickly and getting them in the right order. There's no rhyme or reason to that. Mm. So I think maybe, you know, sharing math, the more conceptual kind of golden nuggets that are underlying the, you know, maybe the procedures. And I understand, you know, maybe we have to like learn how to do things procedurally first and then the understanding comes later. There's, you know, talks behind that too. So again, I don't know, maybe it's like a timing thing. You have to like, be at the right place at the right time. Um, but yeah, I have no good answers to this grant. I don't know. I think, I like I said, I actually think it's an incredibly hard question and it's yeah. everyone has an opinion on education. Exactly. No matter who you talk to, everyone has exactly. an opinion. Um, but I think there is a reason that things, uh, 
whatever someone's opinion is, there's usually a reason that that particular opinion hasn't been implemented. Yeah. Um, and it mm-hmm. maybe has to do with some of the underlying challenges of just like classroom management on top of inspiring students and things to right. that effect. That's right. Um, I guess totally unrelated, but the actual last question, do you still play any basketball? Oh, <laughs> I mean, I might shoot around for fun. I, I'm not on any... I guess I'm like an old person now, so I'm not in any <laughs> leagues or anything. But uh, yeah, I, uh, I, there's a nice basketball court down the street from where I live. And so I was just there yesterday playing around, uh, mm. but nothing, nothing too serious. I mean, do you miss it much? Is it like that being on a team like you were in those first two years of college? Um, I don't miss it so much um, because I like found the thing in life that I mm. love. And so who has time to who miss other things? When you have category theory. <laughs> Yeah, right. No, I mean, it's, it's really fun, but um, I, I absolutely love what I do now. And so, so uh, you know, no regrets. Well, thank you for coming on. This has been an absolute delight. And I hope you yeah. keep blogging like for, yes. for all of our benefits. <laughs> I hope so, too. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. 